Welcome to IEQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. have changed. Good day wherever you're listening from and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio for Friday, June 26th, 2009. This week, episode 131 comes to you from Studio B in beautiful Coriopolis, Pennsylvania. My name is Joe Hughes or Radio Joe and here with me in the studio is the Z-Man, Cliff Slotnick. It's always my great pleasure, Joe. Good day, Cliff. And at the controls is the wingman. Chris Boisel, good afternoon, Chris. Our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Weil, will be joining us at halftime and for the roundup. Today's segments include the microband trivia question. We've got William B. Rose, research architect out of the University of Illinois. And then at halftime, we're going to have insurance issues with Brian McFarland of Legends Environmental Insurance Services. We'll go back to the second half with Bill and then, of course, we'll have the roundup at the end where we bring everybody back together. We've been updating and adding a blog to the IAQ Radio website after every show. Check it out at www.iaqradio.com. Before we get started, let's thank those sponsors. We're delighted to have as our first association sponsor the Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit, multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry, subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dryease Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dryease is first in drying solutions. Visit them at dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at jondon.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their products and services. All right. To uh, contact the show, you just call 724-444-7444. Our show ID is 1547. Press the number 1. You can join the show. You can also stream the show live from the iaqradio.com website. Just follow the link that says go to the show, or you can always download shows later from our iaqradio.com website or from iTunes. Don't forget, you can also get those IICRC continuing education credits or IAQ Council renewal credits by emailing me and requesting a quiz. My email is joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com. Last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. Let's turn it over to Cliff for today's microband trivia question. Thanks, Joe. Listeners win a cool prize by outcompeting IEQ Radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the microband trivia question. Submitting your question is easy. Simply email it to cliffzlotnick at unsmoke.com. Thanks to the Indoor Air Quality Association for providing the Trivia Master Prize, the proceedings from their 2009 conference proceedings on a one gigabyte flash drive. The proceedings include abstracts, white papers, and research results from over 50 technical presentations from their 2009 annual meeting. 
Topics range from a variety of indoor environmental issues such as IEQ investigation and assessment, IEQ in schools, asthma, allergy, IEQ standards, HVAC systems, building forensics, IEQ in healthcare, IEQ green issues, and the business of IEQ. Get one the easy way by ordering it from IEQ or get one the hard way like John Lapotier did from MicroShield Environmental Services in Winter Park, Florida by answering six questions and becoming a Microband Trivia Champion. Now for the Microband Trivia question for Friday, June 26, 2009. Name the group which in 1952 convened the conference titled Condensation Control in Buildings as related to paints, papers, and insulating materials. Back to you, Joe. All right. Thank you, Cliff. Today's guest is Mr. William B. Rose. Bill Rose is a research architect at the University of Illinois at the Building Research Council School of Architecture at the Urbana-Champaign uh, campus. His major field of university research involves water and its effect on buildings. He is the author of Water in Buildings, an Architect's Guide to Moisture and Mold, published in 2005 by Wally and Sons. The book recently won the Association for Preservation Technology Lee Nelson Award. His current university research projects include sky radiation effects with solar reflective roof surfaces and combustion product concentration in houses with unvented combustion appliances. He is the handbook chair of the ASHRAE TC 4.4 responsible for four ASHRAE handbook chapters on building envelope performance, and he is a founding member of the ASHRAE Standards Committee 160P, Design Criteria for Moisture Control in Buildings. Through William B. Rosen Associates, he consults to museums and historic properties on moisture issues and is presently involved in the United Nations building, Sagamore Hill, the home of Teddy Roosevelt, and the Guggenheim Museum in New York. We've got some introductory music for Bill. Good afternoon, Bill. This is Joe Hughes. How are you? Hello, Joe. Fine. Good. Good to have you with us on IAQ Radio. Thank you. Hey, I didn't recognize the music. Is that the trivial trivia question for me? I no, got it first. No, no sure but, a, but actually it's called The Architect, and um, it's by the states. So you can get it on, uh, on iTunes. There you go. We, okay. We good. try to come up with something that relates to uh, the subject, and... Uh, you're the our research architect here, Bill. What, what yeah. exactly is a uh, research architect, and how did you get involved in this field? A uh, research architect is an oxymoron. <laughs> how would you like to have a job title? It's an oxymoron. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, well, I, I uh, let's see, my European friends who, colleagues who got to where we are in building science, they usually came through rigorous engineering training and they're just floored by how informal the training is for the building scientists from the united states many of whom came through carpentry like me um uh but a let's see an architect generally does design uh they're trained to do design and design is an act of will basically design says this goes here like this and you never want to ask a scientist to do design. The scientist will say, well, um, we could put this here, or we could put it over here, or we could do it this way, or we could do one like this and one like this, and then we'll see which is. It, it, design is a really important thing, and, um, and architects do it, um, but combining research and architecture, it, it, is, it is kind of a funny fit. It is a little different, and I, I want to get to um, your definition of building science in a moment, but I, I wanted to give our listeners a, a quick quote from your book. 
because it ties into what you just said. Um, in the book, you say, when water comes in the buildings, it may be argued it comes in through the crack between the design and the construction professions. Can you tell us a little more about what you mean by that? Uh, um, uh, let's see. Everybody's got turf. Uh, everybody knows their, their thing pretty well. Um, we sort of expect architects, we expect somebody to, uh, to put all the pieces together and to know what occurs at interfaces, but we, we're not good at that. Uh, nobody, architects have turf too. Um, uh, it's, it's really the, the cracks between things that, that seem to make all the difference, uh, in a roof, uh, the field or the main part of the roof really rarely leaks. It's the, it's the seams or the valleys or the anomalous conditions. Um, I guess that's what I meant there. Not sure. I hadn't thought about that. Okay. That's, well, I, I know in the earlier part you had talked about how this is one of the few, I guess, um, uh, endeavors in life where, you know, one person designs it and the other, uh, another group of people construct it. And there doesn't seem to be as much, um, communication between those groups as as we had hoped right i use the dental analogy a lot uh and that is suppose we deliver dental services the way we deliver building services then you'd have a a dental designer who would look at the patient's mouth and say something like "Ooh, i see incision here and then draw up uh, a set of uh, drawings and specifications for what's to be done and hand them over to the to the patient and say, go find the cheapest uh, dental contractor you can, uh, <laughs> and it's likely to be the one with the dullest drill bits and that sort of thing. It's kind of crazy that we split it up uh, so strictly the way we do. I know there are a lot of exceptions, design, build, and uh, I think the lines tend are, are tending to blur, but, but boy, we still have a big problem between the... Uh, that's enforced in insurance and in contracts and everything else that separates the design process from the construction process. So where does, what is building science and, and where does this fit into the, the bigger picture? <laughs> it's a, it is an odd term and rarely, we don't, well, the, the public doesn't talk about it. Building scientists talk about it among one another, but people outside of building science rarely ask that question. Uh, we know what science is, and we know what buildings are, and basically building science is just science applied to, to buildings. Um, but to take that just a little bit further, we know sciences can be sort of inductive or deductive, like biology begins as an inductive science where you look around and you see that plants don't move, but animals do. And um, by looking at the conditions that are outside in the real world, begin to draw organization charts and, and begin to make sense and order of uh, what would otherwise be a pretty chaotic situation. A deductive science sort of starts from principles and draws conclusions. Uh, input leads directly to output. And uh, building science is sort of both. The people who model say, here are the physical principles, and so buildings ought to do this. But the inductive scientists will say, let's look around and see what buildings are actually doing and what people are doing in buildings. Let's look at how healthy people seem to be in different environments. Uh, uh, to me, that's one of the important distinctions that science teaches, uh, induction versus deduction in the approach to buildings. Bill, did you have some sort of aha moment which got you thinking about the effect of water on buildings? Let's see. I was... Uh, I started in this position after a couple of years practicing architecture. Started in this position in the mid 1980s, and as the as the young kid in this research establishment, uh, I was assigned. Well, we were all assigned positions responding to the public, uh, whether 
homeowners or building owners or contractors or architects uh, responding to the public uh, with their questions about buildings. And as the newcomer, they assigned me the questions about moisture just because nobody else really wanted to deal with them. They were, they were some of the most troublesome. So I read the books and figured I, I kind of knew everything and found that I was having the same discussion with different people that kind of went back and forth and up and down. And uh, um, it, was, it was very unsatisfying. And so I figured I'm going to get to the bottom of this. Um, uh, I, you've had... Uh, Joe Stibrick on this show before, and I have to say that there was really a moment when uh, I kind of went head-to-head in the mid-1980s with Joe uh, at a conference, and I'd been sort of conventional in my approach, and he wasn't, and uh, I have to give him credit. He he kind of shook me up 25 years ago or so. Joe, unconventional? Who would have thunk it? But sort of with that prompting, I got back to my desk and said, maybe we have to rethink some of the, some of the, the precepts that, that I had actually inherited through my architecture education and uh, from the establishment here, which, which sort of played a big hand in, in generating the rules for vapor barriers and attic ventilation and all that sort of thing. Well, we're talking about um, moisture. Let's let's get some, I guess, a definition first. What is moisture diffusion? Um, pretty girl walks into a room. She's got perfume. Uh, you smell it. Um, the 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 gas, uh, the molecules, the aerosols uh, move uh, move through space. Um, so just the 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 tendency to mix things uh uh within within a medium uh geez i'm not giving you a really good answer what they usually say is uh (laughs) they use the they use the analogy of the drunk in the lamppost um a drunk leaves his lamppost and just kind of wanders aimlessly, moving one way and another. This is kinetic behavior, and it represents the behavior of molecules from a starting point to uh, to another point. Um, in other words, there's there's no direction to it, but but it's not likely that in in this process the drunk is going to wind up exactly back at the lamppost. On the other hand, if uh, another means by which a molecule or a drunk could move, they pick them up in a truck and take them to the next town. They don't, you know, it's, that's dynamic movement. So diffusion is the the, um, the very powerful force that's a result of the kinetic behavior of molecules, typically in a, in, a, in a fluid, a gas or a liquid. Uh, but it's it's absent anything dynamic, anything that's directional, anything you'd put an arrow on that says this is headed in this direction. The diffusion, it just goes out. Um, other processes, dynamic processes, go from A to B. Basically. Are we more concerned with the, the more dynamic processes when you're dealing with water in buildings, or is diffusion, uh, I guess it would be one of the more difficult to figure out, but... Um uh, maybe you can comment on that. Okay. Uh, refrigeration uh, was under development in the early part of the 20th century, and people recognized early on that if, uh, if you build a walk-in cooler and it's chilled uh, regularly on the inside and it's warm and more humid on the other side that the exterior of this enclosure needs to protect against uh, moisture diffusion toward the inside or else the inside gets all corroded or soggy or depending on what the interior face is made from. Uh, So uh, in in 1933 or thereabouts, it was noted that the that the um, that buildings that re, that were insulated had peeling paint, 
and a big uproar ensued. The Forest Products Laboratory was called in to say, how come these insulated buildings are uh, are, are suffering from from a, an epidemic of paint peeling, and they called a paint chemist, and the paint chemist said, "Well, it's because of the gutters." <laughs> and he was right; that's, that's where most of it was coming from. Um, but they they chose to uh, to study this, and uh, the the researcher Teasdale. All this this story is told in the book, but the the researcher Teasdale said, "Well, basically, any time." porous and hygroscopic materials get cold, they get wet, and insulation in cold climates like Madison, Wisconsin, where it was, uh, if it gets cold, it gets wet. Insulation turns, uh, during cold weather, turns interior materials warm, thereby dry, and exterior materials cold, thereby wet. That's process number one. Process number two was you have high vapor pressure indoors and lower vapor pressure outdoors, then the tendency is to migrate outdoors. So he said there are two reasons why insulated buildings tend to get wet on the outside. One of them is associated with, with vapor pressure. The other is just the fact that insulation does what it's supposed to do and turns exterior materials cold. Um, and if you follow through on that second one, then you realize there's an, there's an inherent incompatibility between painted exteriors and insulation. If you follow through on the first one, you say, well, maybe a vapor barrier would help. And that what happened was that the first part tended to be ignored and forgotten because it, it wasn't any help to these two industries, the paint industry and the insulation industry that were trying to get on their feet. Um, so there was a ten. So so everybody focused on the vapor barrier as the mechanism. It's kind of unfortunate that we lost sight of the other mechanism, which in many cases is more important. Uh, but that's that's how diffusion came in. Diffusion was was the the wetting process toward exterior materials that can be handled by vapor barriers. It's not the only wetting process, but it's the one that vapor barriers can manage. Well, while we're talking about uh, different types of, of barriers, we've had um, Andy Osk on the show, and, and he talked about um, the three barriers he, he mentioned were the air barrier, the vapor barrier, and the thermal barrier. And sure. um, which would be the most important in your work and why? Um, okay, if, I'll start at the beginning. I think roofs. Are most important. Okay. <laughs> you okay. want to you want to have a building. Put a roof on it. Put a good roof on, on it. Off. Right. Okay. There you go. Now we got a real building. Um. Uh, my it, to answer questions like this, I usually go back to um a, a, to older buildings. I work primarily in existing buildings and and also historic buildings, and and they worked really well. So I, I hate to give any answer to a question that makes existing buildings look worse than they really are. They're, they're really nice things. Um, and we didn't have vapor barriers until essentially 1952. Um, so uh, I sure don't apply very much importance at all to vapor barriers. Okay. I'm reviewing right now the minutes of the little conference or workshop that they had at the time that they were rolling out the first uh, the first code requirements for vapor barriers. And what's amazing is that the all of the examples of wet buildings that needed to be protected, all of the examples that they pulled out were houses on crawl spaces. And a reasonable person would have said, hey, how about if we do something about the crawl space and let's leave this attic ventilation and vapor barrier business till later? Uh, because the, every building that they could find was dry, whether it had a vapor barrier or, you know, and that didn't matter. The wetness was solely a function of whether it was on a crawl space, and crawl spaces were somewhat unfamiliar. They were largely post-war, um, but they were really wet. And so... Rather than do the crawl space, uh, as I think it should have been done, they, they adopted these rules. I kind of wish they hadn't. Now, can you give us a, an example? As a matter of fact, maybe maybe I can tie two things together here. One is that um, we got a text in that 
you know, there's a fourth, a weather barrier, okay? And, and I think some people combine the air and the weather barrier, and, and they consider that to be a, a, the most important, and I think you just verified that. Now, the other thing that I wanted to ask about is when you are dealing with old buildings or even maybe some newer buildings that have were built originally without insulation, but then somebody attempts to insulate them, what types of problems does that cause? And, and can you give us an example of a, a specific building? Um, in your introduction, you mentioned the group APT, or the Association for Preservation Technology. People can find that on the web. It's a great organization. And I, they have a bulletin, and I published an article titled, Should the Walls of Historic Buildings Be Insulated? And... If I had said yes or no, it would have been a pretty short article. <laughs> it didn't say yes or no. Um, what I did say was that the burden for energy conservation falls on everybody. It doesn't fall less on people who are concerned with historic buildings than, than anybody else. Um, but if we were to do an audit of, of a historic building or of any building, uh, you come up with a prioritized list of energy conserving measures, and typically adding wall insulation falls down in the somewhere at the low end of the top ten. You insulate the roof, you uh, add storm windows, you find the big holes and stop them up, uh, you get more energy efficient equipment, you abandon the use of air conditioning. You know, there are a whole lot of other things that you might do before adding insulation. Incidentally, I've never gotten around to insulating my 1920s house. One of these days I will. <laughs> um, uh, but that said, um, uh, the it, how to do insulation is, is, uh, is a, a tricky thing. Uh, everybody who involved in insulation kind of knows that um so uh, i hate to make rules to say yeah we really everybody ought to do that um i i, I, I think everybody ought to participate in a, a giant big campaign to save energy and wall insulation well wall insulation turns out to be um either the first or the second biggest contributor to energy savings in the weatherization program so, yeah, go it, do it. Um, uh, I promise I'll get around to it on my house. But uh, um, uh, it's, it, but just saying do it, does, it tends to hide some of the difficulties that there are in retrofitting insulation. You always want to do it at the outside to the extent possible. Uh, okay. Okay. Cliff? Well, I was thinking maybe we can move on to some construction uh questions and you know we have a lot of questions really on attics and and you know <laughs> uh you know first of all um you know do you, is it your opinion that attics uh should be ventilated <laughs> i was thinking and getting ready for this <laughs> that that um attic ventilation is the britney spears of building science <laughs> okay. In other words, I mean, you can't have an issue of People magazine that doesn't talk about Brittany, whether she's back on stage or out of rehab or putting on weight or something like that. And and people, you, you just you got to talk about Britney Spears kind of, and you got to talk about attic ventilation. If I take if I approach this inductively, that is, I look around uh, and say, how are our roofs doing? Forget that that I know that stuff from a deductive point of view pretty well you look around and just say uh okay we're good you know uh are we vented are we not well every vented attic i've ever seen is not vented somewhere uh and every unvented attic i've seen is kind of vented somewhere and <laughs> nobody measures whether they're we don't know whether things are vented or not vented and we don't know what problems there are except for the ones that we create under sort of petri dish laboratory conditions uh i'm exaggerating the case a little bit uh i i did a survey of well i, I used to be a home inspector or a, a researcher 
disguised as a home inspector, and I did home inspections. My colleague and I did 670 of them, and we found 43 cases of severely rotted roof sheathing. We also found 44 buildings that were on wet or flooded crawl spaces, and damned if they weren't the same building. If we just step back and say, how are we doing on roofs? Uh, the answer is we're not doing too bad. Roofs tend to be hot, and hot means dry. And uh, one of the the strongest reasons I've ever run across for attic ventilation is to forgive occasional roof leaks, which do occur as, as roofs age. I don't know what to do about that, because if we want to say what's, what's a design leakage criterion for a roof, we have to say, well, zero. <laughs> you, got a, you got a roof leak, you patch, the, uh, you fix it, you repair it. You don't say that it's, it's under some threshold uh, leakage criteria. You, you fix it. Um, but still, attic ventilation helps in some ways. Um, but if it's absent uh, intentionally or not, uh, it, uh, the consequences don't jump out at you. Uh, then there's also the whole set of roofs that have no cavity at all. And these are much more predictable and tend to be pretty good. That is the commercial roof using like a foam insulation under a membrane, whether it remains flat or is tilted up at an angle. They tend to be, they tend to be quite good, quite uh, predictable. Uh, in, our, in the lab where I studied this, that assembly led to the hottest sheathing of all the other assemblies that included cavities, whether they were cathedral ceiling or flat ceiling. Uh, and by virtue of being hot, that sheathing was also dry. Uh, I could go on forever, but, but you get the idea. I've been asked, what do I think about this stuff? Uh, I've had one of your, your I'm sure, well, an IAQ uh, uh, consultant uh, spend like 10 minutes with a client telling me this and this and this about air leakage and ductwork and all this, this, this. And he said, How, you know, what do you think we ought to do? And my answer to him, and I was being paid for this, was whatever. <laughs> that was the, the correct scientific answer because we're way beyond what determinism can tell us about a given roof system. We're in we're totally into the probabilistic realm. Well, let me let me. We have to go to halftime in just a moment, but I, I get this question. I you know we hear people yep. say that you should move, uh, especially in these hot, humid climates. They're they're putting foam up against the the. Uh, bottom side of the roof deck mm -hmm. and I get people that say but, but that will that will void the shingle warranty or, or that will cause this is that can you comment on that well I, as a scientist I don't study warranties okay so that puts me in a very a small group of people um, but all of my experience is that uh, that accelerated shingle uh, deterioration is associated with the makeup of the shingle and not with not even with color to say nothing of vent presence or absence of venting uh, I can look around and and see curled shingles and exactly one bundle will be curled and the others will will be okay uh, I could I, if you visit my lab you'll see that that one recipe of shingles is all bad, and one recipe is all good, and uh, and this is independent of whether they've been for 20 years now on a on a vented or an unvented or whatever. You know, it all comes down to the the, the makeup of the shingles. Perfect. That's exactly what I needed to hear. Now I can tell them I've, I've talked to somebody and that I don't <laughs> believe it affects the durability of the shingle. Now that may or not may or may not include the warranty. Yeah, and that, that's 98% true, what I'm telling you. I mean, there's also a 2% that says, yeah, you, you are affecting the temperature, and temperature does affect the service life. But 98% of it is, is uh, makeup recipe for the shingle. 
Perfect. Bill, we've got to go to halftime. We'll bring you right back. Okay. Thank you. All right. Today at halftime, we've got uh, we've got Brian McFarland of Legends Environmental Insurance Services. And uh, as soon as we're done talking to Brian here, we'll uh, thank those sponsors again. Chris, do we have any intro music for Brian today? Better get some insurance on the way. Take out some insurance on the way. Brian, do we have you on the line? Sure, Joe. How are you doing today? Very good, thanks. I understand you're going to um, give us two examples today. We are. Today we're going to talk a little bit about claims. Uh, as we, uh, my last episode on the show, uh, we introduced that uh, claims were going to be our upcoming topic. Uh, today I want to talk about uh, claims for a contractor. This would be like a restoration contractor or a remediation contractor. Uh, not just specifically mold, but any type of contractor uh, that's out there. Uh, recently, we had a client that had a claim, and I think I discussed this once before, where while they were at a job, uh, they uh, started to dry down the space. And they were drying down uh, with dehumidification and dehumidifiers a bathroom. Uh, and one thing that they didn't do in that bathroom was remove the mirrors from the wall. Uh, the humidity, uh, the relative humidity in that space dried to the point where the glue that was holding the mirrors uh, to the wall dried out and the mirror fell off the wall. Uh, subsequently, the uh, mirror broke a water supply line to the toilet and the uh, water ran for several days before it was noticed that that was on a Friday and that the claim or the uh, discovery of that water leak was on a uh, Monday. Ouch. So, okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we can all see where this was headed. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, this happened to be a high-rise building, and, uh, you know, the water ran from the 13th floor down to the to the basement. In uh, this type of claim, the insurance carrier, well, first, the insurance did a great job. They responded immediately, uh, even hired other water restoration companies to come out and help dry down the space to minimize damage. Uh, but certainly the insurance carrier responded in that situation, uh, and the, the response was actually general liability exposure as an ongoing operations claim. Uh, so the insurance carrier jumped in, the insurance paid their deductible, uh, and the insurance carrier jumped in and paid for any uh, lost uh, materials uh, of the individual uh, condo owners as well as replacement and dry down of the space or a replacement of drywall and so forth. Uh, and that and the claim turned out really well and, uh, on both sides. So the insurance carrier responded well. Right. Now, the, inter- the interesting thing about that claim is, and I get this question a lot uh, from insurance, which is if they would have left that job, let's say that they had completely dried down the space, and they would have left that job, uh, and a week later, that mirror fell off the wall. So after they got their sign off, it, it, everything's dried down. A week later, the mirror fell off the wall and broke the water supply line. I often get a question, is, would that work be covered then? Would the claim be covered then? Uh, and that's a tricky question, and the answer is yes and no. It should be covered, but not all insurance companies are going to cover that. Uh, especially for a remediation contractor, unless the remediation contractor is sure to have completed operations coverage. Uh, completed operations coverage by most insurance carriers uh, for an environmental contractor is given through a, a, typically through a form called a, a CG2037, which is an additional insured form, but it's only given out when the insured signs a contract with the homeowner or business owner for which they're performing work. Uh, so it's important to make sure, uh, one, uh, that, you know, for, for a contractor that they have completed operations coverage, but also to understand when that would apply. Uh, so in that situation where, you know, a week later the mirror falls off the wall and it severs the water line, if for most insurance carriers, if they don't have a signed contract with that uh, homeowner, in this case, uh, that uh, you know says that they're going to provide the work, then they would not have completed operations coverage. Okay. With some of the carriers, with some of the carriers out there now that are, are you know really 
what I would say price competitive, you know, that are uh, offering me uh, $2,500 uh, quotes for contractors. There would be no completed operations coverage at all. Uh, and so it's, it's important to understand where your completed operations coverage is and what necessitates or what kicks in that completed operation coverage to be in place. Right. Hey, Brian, can I? Uh, we're running a little short today. Can we save the one that wasn't covered for your next visit? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Great, great. Thanks again for joining us. We always appreciate having you on. And, in fact, we're going to thank you once again right now. Cliff? Well, we're delighted to have as our first association sponsor the Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at IQA.org. All right. We also have advertisers, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Pro Restore for cleaning, odor removal, and antimicrobial products remediators trust and depend on. Visit them at prorestoreproducts.com. And, of course, our primary sponsors, Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry, subscriptions, and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dries Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dries is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at J-O-N-D-O-N.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Visit them at legends-enviro.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their products and services. All right, let's bring Dr. Dieter in real quick. Hello, Dieter. Oh, there he is. <coughs> Dieter, any quick questions or comments for Bill? Uh, well, yeah, a couple of comments. I don't know who Britney Spears is. <laughs> I live happily ever thereafter. Um, and that is good for him, I guess. Um, I still, you know, I'm, a, I'm an engineer. I'm a mechanical engineer. And I know something about the psychrometric chart. And I know what dew points are and uh, wet bulbs and dry bulbs and... and, 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 and uh, uh, all of that stuff. And I still think, I mean, I have a roof over my house, which is not leaking. And I also am aware of the fact that roof shingles probably deteriorate, not due to the fact that there is water on it, but that ultraviolet uh, 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 light uh, is deteriorating them. But if my attic, if my attic is 120 or 130 degrees, and I do have a fan, that uh, sucks out some air. Now, again, I'm aware of the fact. So my roof is 120 degrees, let's say it, and it's 100 degrees outside and 100 degrees relative humidity. Now, I'm well aware of the fact that I'm drawing in outside air, which is cooler than what I have, and I'm also drawing in some moisture. Now, in my house, and I have, my house came with one of those roof vents, I have never seen any mold growth or moisture, and it makes sense to me that if I can keep the temperature lower up there, it may well be uh, good for me as far as my air conditioning bill is concerned. Uh, on the other hand, I do not know the thermodynamics of yeah, it's, what, what is the gain? What is the difference if I keep the roof at 100 degrees or 120 degrees? All right. Uh, does, does that really make a difference? I don't know. You, know. you hear this and that and the other, and, of course, I discussed this problem, not problem, this subject, with uh, Joe Stebrook, Stebrook, whatever you want to call him. <laughs> I call him Stebrook. That's the right way to pronounce it. And uh, so that, that is an interesting uh, um, uh, um, subject. Well, let's oh, ask. And I don't know whether I ever got a satisfying answer of why it is good or why it is bad, and you shouldn't do it or you should do it. Well, let's let Bill comment on that, and then we'll bring you back for the roundup, Dieter. How's that sound? Good. All right. Sure. Thank you. Bill? Okay. 
Uh, Dr. Dieter is correct that venting, whether by passive or active means, tends to uh, lower the summer afternoon uh, buildup of heat in an attic, and, and uh, by several degrees. Uh, of course, it's, it's different at 11 a.m. and 2 p.m. and 4 p.m., and the maximum might be as much as 20, 30 degrees Fahrenheit. As we use more and more insulation, that difference in delta T across the insulation makes less and less difference. In our laboratory, we tried to study this uh, using R30 insulation in both a vented and an unvented attic and to try to determine, uh, to see which air conditioner ran longest and we couldn't get a good answer uh, for for many reasons. But the main reason is it's it's too slow. And, and uh, my advice to anybody is don't try to use runtime of two different air conditioners as a control in an experiment because they'll get screwed up by uh, by uh, limit settings, amount of humidity in the two. Uh, uh, refrigerant charge. We weren't able to detect a difference, and I don't know of anyone who has run an experiment where this def- where this difference in air conditioning use has been demonstrated. Uh, but 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 it does cool the attic. No two ways about that. All right. Well, let's, uh, Bill. If you don't mind, we'd. Li- I think I'd like to go to some of your more famous projects that you've uh, worked on here. <laughs> sure. um, we had a text question about some work you've done at the, the Guggenheim Museum, and I'm not really familiar with the structure and how it's built and all that. Could you give us a little idea of uh, what you've done there? Yeah, this was um, it's Frank Lloyd Wright building. It's one of the first buildings, and it may be the first, to use gunite uh, as a structural element. Gunite, prior to that, had been used for swimming pools, and crazy Frank Lloyd Wright goes and uses it for a a major building. Um, uh, And because it's spray applied, it it leaves sort of cavities behind the, behind the, uh, the structural steel. And so the, the, the concrete, which is only five inches thick for as high as 20 some feet, um, has a honeycomb network of voids in it. Um, this didn't seem to be too important to people until one, uh, the, well, the building was fully under a roof, so no rainwater got on it. And on one morning in, in one of the first winters, the building leaked. It just started crying, and uh, water was pouring out of this building that is totally under a different roof. Um, and so, like a good, and that that was inconsistent with what I had said in my book about uh, about basically water goes toward the smallest pores. It doesn't just pour out of hygroscopic, but it was. The, and so I did what a so a good uh, consultant does. I chose that my theory was more important than my observation and until year two <laughs> when the same thing happened the building it, it looked like it, i mean it, uh you know concrete doesn't have a urinary system but this one did <laughs> um, uh, and and what it was was basically the humid humidified pressurized air at the interior was filling this network of voids uh such that frost and ice would form quantities of water would of ice would form and then when the weather turned warm it would pour out and pour out of the uh, the voids hadn't seen it before but it was uh, it was quite a thing wow and what's the solution to that is there a solution well the solution that i proposed uh was an air barrier for a compact there's no cavity in the building and i said we need an air barrier people thought i was crazy and they said no we don't do air barriers in this business i said very well then uh, I'd like to specify the adhesive for the interior insulation, which they let me have a hand in doing, and I specified that it be continuous.
Christmas, so we kind of got a, an air bearing. <laughs> you, in a roundabout way, you got yourself in a roundabout an air way. It's hard. <laughs> People don't want to do that kind of stuff, so you got to trick them. That's beautiful. Well, while we're on the subject of your work in famous or well-known buildings, are there any other uh, you know examples that you'd like to talk about? I, I offhand, uh, none kind of jump to mind. Okay, can I ask? Uh, a there question? are a million, but let me ask yeah. a quick one though, Bill. On the cover of your book, um, yeah. what building is that? And it looks uh, like the infamous rising damp here for people that <laughs> yeah. can't see it. Yeah, that's the uh, that's the chateau at Pierrefonds, uh, Pierre, uh, Pierrefonds, uh, the sort of Pierre's well. Um, uh, and all these old castles in France had been destroyed by Richelieu because he was real Renaissance and he hated anything that was old. So he just had people go around, armies go around, tear these things up. And an architect named Viollet-le-Duc rebuilt them. Uh, he, he's the one who stuck the salamander on it and uh, as an emblem of Francis I, who was the king at the time, and, or at the time that it was originally built. Um, and he, and Vianney the Duke was great. He said, you really need gutters. Everything comes down to water management. You got to do it right. And in fact, this example on the cover breaks one of his rules with his rule being don't allow downspouts in the middle of the wall because they're going to get screwed up. Well, this one got screwed up <laughs> uh, and it led to, uh, it, it, there's a shape to the, to the water damage that's kind of a, a normal distribution curve that, that, that tells you, hey, I know where the water is coming from. It's coming exactly from a leak uh, in that. And then it was, it has uh, efflorescence and algae. It's just the prettiest little thing in color. So, um, it's a, it's, it was a great photograph. A lot of people have complimented me on it. I don't know. If, if you let us, maybe we could post it up on the website so some sure. of the listeners can actually visualize what we're talking about here. Yes. Um, okay, great. Cliff? Well, what I'd like to – I think you, you made an excellent comment before about energy uh, management being everyone's responsibility. And, you know, right. I, I think there's probably two sides to that question. And what the other side of the question is, is what is the green building movement doing wrong? in your opinion? <laughs> um, what they're doing right is, uh, is getting everybody thinking about waste. I'm not sure they needed to do that. I mean, but it's, it's good to have people of all ages not wasting so much stuff. But it's not as though we needed the green movement to be conscious or aware of that. Uh, we always are. That's the plus. Okay. Um, uh, I'm. uh, um, I teach a class called sustainability theory, and I I advise my students to um, uh, uh, to do the right thing, uh, or to describe uh, certain activities that would be beneficial to all of us and the planet, blah blah, uh, and not use the word sustainable or green. And it's quite a challenge. Um, suppose we dropped those words. I mean, the world doesn't care whether we use those words or not. Uh, there are good things to do and not so good things to do. And in a way, this concept of green, I think, points us toward doing soft, easy, light things rather than more difficult uh, and needed things. I've I, I I say that black is the new green. That if we're if we're really serious, we have to we have to stop with this light stuff, and we have to we have to really get serious. Really get um, serious. My colleague uh, Paul Francisco poses the Department of Homeland Sustainability with a color code of light green to dark green. <laughs> <laughs> well. While we're on energy and, and sustainability to some degree, there's a, you know there's a movement with ASHRAE to uh, eventually get to net zero energy consumption buildings. Um, I think I know the answer because I think you mentioned it earlier, but what's the most important change we can make to buildings, uh, whether they – let's start with new buildings and then maybe we could go to older buildings to help get toward that goal. Um. Uh, 
when, sorry, this is so tough. My two recommendations are are to um, to reward low capacity in equipment. In other words, I think that any building that has the capacity to spend big amounts of energy uh, will. Okay. <laughs> and, okay. And uh, it's not it's not doing anything good. We really need. Uh, if I had my way, I would say new buildings may not have equipment with capacities over and then define it depending on use and square footage and things. And then uh, the client says, "Yeah, but I'm going to freeze or I'm going to burn in the summer." Okay, now you better direct your architect or whoever to do the windows and the walls right, and you better adjust to what you can afford to do. In other words, I, I think we need to be much more strict. And just um, uh, and, and to, the other thing we need to do, I'll be speaking to the Association of Petroleum Engineers in a month, uh, is to say let's prepare for the time when energy is not only expensive, but when it is scarce and intermittent and when it's gone. It may be gone 100 years from now, and we're building new buildings. How long are they supposed to last? 100 years. Okay. They better do fine with when, when, the, the, when the juice is off. I mean, I have I, – I, I, my house is a net zero energy house. I have two positions on the main electrical switch on and net zero energy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like we, we really have to um, – we have to adjust to um, – uh, to scarce energy, and not just expensive energy. There are no silver bullets then, huh? Right. Um, right. All right. Well, it's uh, close to roundup. Why don't we go to the roundup here? And I've got 25 other questions. I'm going to have to pick my best one, and uh, Cliff's going to have to do the same, and Dr. Dieter may have another comment. And if any listeners have any more questions out there, please feel free to text them in. Move him on, hit him up, hit him up, move him on, move him on, hit him up, raw high. Cut him out, ride him in, ride him in, let him out, cut him out, ride him in, raw Bill, I, since I'm I'm kind of in the uh, commander's seat here today, I'm going to take the first one, and then we're going to send it over to Cliff, and then we're going to bring Dr. Dieter back in, and if I get a chance, I'll get one more. I want you, if you could, to tell us a little bit about some of the research you're doing on combustion product concentrations in houses with unvented combustion appliances. What can you tell us about that? Uh, that unvented combustion combustion or that houses with unvented combustion appliances uh, exceed WHO and Health Canada thresholds for NO2 uh, pretty regularly. But for all the other uh, combustion product contaminations, including CO, CO2, NO, uh, etc., they tend to be under uh, thresholds. Uh, so we didn't, we weren't asked to decide whether these are good or bad. So we didn't decide whether they're good or bad. We show what the resulting concentrations are. I see. And the thresholds that you compared them to were? Well, we began out of ASHRAE Fundamentals Chapter 9. Um, uh, I could uh, pull them up if you no, want. No, no, that's but, fine. I just... But, uh, uh, I can give you the I, I, uh, the final report is public, and I can send that to you, and you can put it on the website. Great, thank you, Bill. Cliff. Okay, Bill. I, I, between you and Dr. Dieter, Dieter mentioned UV, and uh, you talked a lot about bulk water and, and condensation. Uh, I guess what my question is: is building damage due to water freezing underestimated and not given enough attention? We did a study on pipe bursting due to freezing. I can address that. Okay. 
Um, and we solved the pipe bursting problem. Uh, try to be brief, everybody thinks that, that water turns to ice and becomes 8% bigger. That's not how pipe bursts occur. Uh, it's because of blockage and elevated fluid pressure downstream. So there are a whole lot of ways to allow piping water supply systems to turn to ice and back to water without damage to the system. Um, uh, so there are ways to greatly reduce the pipe bursting due to freezing problem. Okay. All right. Well, hope our restoration contractors might not want that information to get out. I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> nah, they will. Plumbers it. like it. Everybody likes less damage. They, they will. <laughs> Dr. Dieter, any questions or comments? Uh, yeah, I am. Uh, I'm glad that. Um, uh, uh, Bill mentioned uh, the wonderful, wonderful castles on the Loire Valley in France, where, by the way, one of my favorite, favorite men in the world, uh, Leonardo da Vinci, lives. And uh, under the king who was mentioned earlier. And it's amazing that uh, 500 years ago, we knew how to build buildings. And then comes the guy around, and uh, I said that before, and I will say it again. There was Frank Lloyd Wright. Some people call him the greatest architect in the world. He screwed up every damn building he did with the exception, <laughs> with the exception of the gasoline station in Idaho or somewhere up north. Uh, he was a great, great uh, artist, but he was a shitty <laughs> um, uh, architect. An architect ought to give me a building in which I can live without having a ton of problems, yeah. like <laughs> water leaks. He never ever built a building where there wasn't a water leak. Then he tried to hide it right next to Joe's house over there um, and build a house on top of a river. I mean, you know. <laughs> the infamous falling water. Dieter, let me, let me get it. Water. Dr. Peter, put on your boxing gloves, because I can defend. You can defend it? All right. It's it's worthless. I mean, it's nice. It looks great, but you can't live in it. So so that that, that is fine. I uh, I think we really have to make headways in looking at better buildings and better building designs for the future. Um. Yeah, I'm in my house. My house is 35 years old. Should I invest? And I have the money to put a solar panel on top of my roof. Is that worth it? Uh, it certainly was not reasonable at all 20 years ago, 30 years ago. But there is going to be uh, uh, engineering and, 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 and cost reductions in the future. And I think we ought to look at that. Um, Fortunately, I will not be around 100 years from now when we may we may run out of, quote, energy, be it oil or coal or what have you. And I don't know whether I want to have a windmill in my backyard. I wouldn't really mind it. But I think we have to look at those solutions and see what is happening. Well, Bill, first I've got to give you a shot at defending uh, Frank Lloyd right there. <laughs> 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 uh you want to mention anything uh, real quick? I, um, for every defect in a Frank Lloyd Wright building, I can point to similar defects in buildings of any age. Uh, well, I, oh, I believe that. Yes. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. All right. And by the uh, way, Dieter, you will, I, I'll note that uh, the summary and final comments on Bill's book start with the sentence, buildings should be dry and healthful. Um, they should smell good and feel dry. They should not support the growth of microorganisms. And a little later down here, he says buildings should last a long time. So I think you're actually on the same page here. Hey, uh, I'm on the same page there. Yeah, Absolutely. I like that. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Dieter, thanks for joining us. I don't want to keep Bill over too long, but I've got Anytime. one more. Do you have a, another minute, uh, Bill? Yeah, sure. I got another one I wanted to ask you about, and that is the sky radiation effects with solar reflective solar reflective roof surfaces, you've been doing some research on that, and I just want to know if uh, you can tell us a little bit about what you're finding out. Yeah, we were called uh, to Tucson, Arizona, because people opened up the uh, opened up some roofs following a uh, truss rise. I won't get into that. 
And when they did, they opened them up in the winter time. They found that the fiberglass insulation directly on the underside of the roof was soaking wet. You could wring it out. Um, and, and there hadn't been rain in, in like five months, and it was a perfect build-up roof, bone white. And uh, so, I, uh, there, so I was able to study uh, what the nighttime radiation effects are based on the emissivity and the absorptivity, that is, the infrared and the solar spectrum. And bag on, but the underside of the roof never got up to the temperature of the outdoor air in the course of that winter. Hmm. It was really cold because of nighttime radiation. It was an exceptional case, um, uh, but um, it has led a lot of the people who do modeling to kind of stop using soul air temperature and look at infrared and solar radiation very differently. All right. The, other, the only other question, I've, I've got many more, but I always like to end with this, Bill. Is there anything you'd like to add or, or any, anything that we missed that uh, you think is important we get out to our listeners? Uh, no, just that you guys are doing a great job getting out to listeners. I mean, who who does such a such a thing? Uh, I've listened to some of the streamed programs that you've done, and you do a great job. Uh, I, I really want to compliment you. Well, thank you. We appreciate that. And uh, last but not least, uh, if if anybody wants to get a copy of your book, where do they go? Wiley.com. Wiley.com. All right. Or Amazon.com. Or Amazon.com. I think that's where I ended up. But uh, I got myself a copy of it, and I highly recommend it. And I like the way you uh, go back and explain science for those of us that have uh, short-term memory. Actually, I don't know if that's short-term or long-term memory issues. But uh, it was great to get a little science primer at the beginning of the book and then go into some of the more detailed information that you have uh, following through. So, ladies and gentlemen, this is uh, Radio Joe, Joe Hughes saying that uh, I want to thank our guest, Bill Rose, research architect out of the University of Illinois. Next week, we're going to be off for Independence Day. Then we'll be back on July 10th with another, uh, and we're going to have another building science show with Bud Offerman. Uh, before we go, I want to thank my co-host, Cliff Slotnick. Uh, always my pleasure, Joe. Enjoy yeah. your fourth. Great. Uh, yeah, you too, Cliff. Yeah. Uh, of course, I want to thank the wingman at the controls there uh, for helping us out, Brian McFarland of Legends Environmental Insurance. Of course, our ever-entertaining technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow. But most importantly, our growing group of loyal listeners, thanks for joining us. Please come back in two Fridays from now at noon and join us for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production.